Okay, let's go ahead and talk about the nature of the conflict that we're going to, apparent conflict that we're going to talk about today from Mark's lesson, if you have it. And then we're going to dive into the, I think the motivating questions behind why what Mark is arriving at today is of significance for us, all right? So, um, in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, we have what appears to be a discrepancy that calls into question the nature of inerrancy. And I'm going to give a definition of what inerrancy is in just a minute. And it's important that we do that because there are there are different things that people mean, that different people mean when they say the word inerrancy. There's a, a, a number of ways that you can talk about inerrancy and not be talking about the same thing, right? So, here's, here's how... Um, Mark outlines the purpose of today's lesson. The reading material carries its own narrative, and while there are great nuggets to be gleaned from a careful examination of the text, we use this week's lesson instead to focus on some difficulties and the passages that become apparent when reading both Samuel and Chronicles together. So one of our convictions as evangelical Christians is that while there are separate books contained in the Scripture, ultimately all of those books come together to form one overarching grand meta-narrative that displays for us the redemptive history of the world in which God is interacting with mankind to bring about restoration as a result of sin and the climax of Jesus Christ. Um, to unite all things, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1, in Jesus, okay? And so while there is separateness in these books, we also recognize that there's one overarching narrative that these books are unfolding throughout the Scripture. And we also believe that this uh, unfolding narrative is not in conflict, that it's, it's clear, and that it presents a coherent, clear narrative throughout, okay? So whenever we compare books, we should not find conflicts we should find things that complement one another, leading toward the overarching grand merit narrative. Okay, everybody with me? And so here's what uh, Mark is unfolding for us, is there's an apparent contradiction to that inherent understanding of what it means to be an evangelical Christian and the passages that we are looking at today. Okay? So, uh, and, there, and what we're going to see are wonderful reading skills, uh, readings to sharpen our own study skills and to teach uh, those study skills to others. Okay, so... Um, beyond the fiction of television, most serious Bible students will come across passages of Scripture that seem perplexing and riddling in meaning, um, which is a, a, a very careful way that Paul uh, that Mark is outlining um, our, our issue for today. Of course, these are not the simple passages of God in Christ redeeming the world or of man confessing his sin and repentance and putting faith in Christ. It's hard to see the simple gospel as a riddle. While there are passages that set out salvation in terms so easily comprehended that children are able to place their faith in the Lord, there are other passages that seem almost impossible to understand. Now, when we say that, we also need to make sure that we give the caveat, as I've written down here, that none of the passages like we are going to talk about today have anything to do with essential core Christian doctrines. Okay, So, wherever we find an issue where there's a... Um, a discrepancy regarding, for instance, the order of the temptations of Christ in the Gospels. None of those things call into question the overarching theological communication of what those narratives are trying to accomplish. It's just a discrepancy in the order or an amount of something. So they're secondary issues, not primary issues, okay? So while we're talking about secondary things, and those are important to talk about, we also have to recognize that the problems are not 
uh, problems that arise in a, a sort of crumbling of theological foundations for us, okay? So, consider the passages that pertain to David and the census in 2 Samuel 24 and in 1 Chronicles 21. There are some rather stark differences in these two accounts which leave the reader puzzling what really happened. Now, let's look, and Mark outlines these for us, in the lesson at just a couple of different uh, examples of what he's talking about here. So consider the difference in simply the first verse as the ESV translated, translates it. Second Samuel 24, verse 1, David senses, okay, again, the anger of the Lord. Now, who is the actor there? The anger of the Lord, okay, everybody see that? Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king okay, follows through, right? And First Chronicles 21, however, describing the same event, this is how the chronicler writes it. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, what we don't want to say is that those are interchangeable terms for the same person, right? Uh, I mean, there are definitely distinctions between the Lord and Satan, okay? So, there's an issue there when you look at these things side by side. And we have to decide how we're going to approach that, okay? In Samuel, it says the Lord incited David to number Israel, while in Chronicles, it says that Satan did. As you read through the different, different accounts of the census, the results of the census are reported in each text with different numbers, okay? So, who inspired the census is one thing. Okay, now the actual census also has some issues. Second Samuel 24. The end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Israel came back to, in verse Chronicles 21. Israel came back to Jerusalem, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1.1 million men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. He did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. So again, some distinctions between the two texts that are different, that we need to, to speak to. So these numbers clearly do not match. In Samuel, Joab reports 800,000 fighting men in Israel and 500,000 in Judah for a total of 1.3 million. Yep. In Chronicles, Joab's numbers are 1.1 million in Israel with another 470,000 in Judah totaling 1.57 million. Okay, with the proviso that none were included from the tribes of Levi and Benjamin. At the end of the accounts, David buys a plot of land, a threshing floor to stop a plague that has broken out. Differences are found there as well. And Aronah went out and paid homage to the king and his with his face to the ground. And Aronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor with you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Verse 21 of 1 Chronicles. Uh, First Chronicles 21. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the fleshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Again, some obvious differences between the two texts. Okay? In Samuel, David buys the threshing floor from Aranah for 50 shekels of silver. In Chronicles, David buys the area from Ornam for 600 shekels of gold. The seller is different, the number of shekels is different, and the tender, gold or silver, is different. Reading the entire passages shows us 
that there are not only riddles posed to the student, there are several more, some rather subtle, but differences nonetheless. So, how does one approach these difficulties, okay? So, and then he outlines for us how he's going to walk through this uh, lesson for today. And I'm going to do a little more background material because I do want us to be on the same page as we talk about this. And so, here's what he says again, talking about the lesson's purpose. There's a twofold purpose. One, to demonstrate an approach to studying these perplexing riddles of interpretation. Second, to try to unravel the story and understand what we can understand what we can about what has happened. Okay, so let me talk about a little of a common background for us. Really what's at issue here is an issue of authority. As evangelical Christians, we affirm the authority of Scripture. We are sola scriptura people, right? Um, that's why we, we preach from the Word of God. That's why what happened a minute ago at the 930 service is important for us, probably the chief important event of our week as a church, the proclamation of the Word of God. That's why when you come to counsel with a pastor or even in our biblical counseling department, we're going to rely upon the, the truth in the Bible to speak into your life. The way that we run the church is, is based on biblical principles because we believe that God has revealed his character to us and the nature of the scripture. And as a result, everything that we do has to be grounded in the authority of scripture. We are a Bible people, okay? That's non-negotiable. So what happens is whenever you have issues like this, it begins to chip away at least a little bit. It's certainly in the eyes of some, the authority of scripture. If it is true that there are errors such as this or there are discrepancies such as this in the scripture, why are there not errors in other places? And how far do those errors go? Um, is it true that the Bible is inerrant in all that it does? Or is it inerrant only in some aspects? For instance, only in the things that speak to faith and practice. And if that is the case, then what are the things that speak to faith and practice alone? Um, you can see the Pandora's box just begin to open whenever you begin to question things like this and begin to try to explain away um, the apparent errors in the Scripture by compensating a little bit on the authority of Scripture, okay? And so there are a lot of things at stake in the discussion that we are having today. And there are several people, including guys like Bart Ehrman, who would see things like this and discrepancies in the gospel and things of that nature as reasons to not believe in the scripture. And so we have a responsibility as people of the book to defend the book, okay? And so we're going to try to accomplish a, a common groundwork for that today, okay? Uh, let me first uh, approach this discussion by saying that anytime we have discussions like this, especially with those who are outside of our faith, we have to understand that we are coming at these questions with different perspectives, okay? There needs to be an honesty about that, that when you and I sit down to answer questions like this as Christians, we are coming with a perspective that there's probably an answer, and that there's a resolution that can be had, and that ultimately our, our doctrine of inerrancy can be upheld. If there are those people, however, who are not Christians or who are uh, Christians of a different bent in terms of their uh, view of inerrancy, they're going to come with a different perspective to the table. And we need to be understanding of that, okay? So we can't be frustrated with those who would see that in a different way than we see it because they have a different worldview, a different perspective with which they bring uh, an understanding to the text that enables them to draw different conclusions than we are going to draw, 
And that's because we have the Holy Spirit of God in us, affirming in us the truth ultimately of God's word. Okay, so there's an element of this in which we have to understand that our convictions about the nature of scripture are convictions that are given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, there has to be that understanding first and foremost. All right. And so I'm going to let a guy named um, Philip Edgecombe Hughes speak to this a little bit when he talks about the problem of historical relativity, again, in the Scripture and Truth book that I mentioned earlier. Um, There's a lot more here that I'm not going to touch on, but I do think what he talks about in terms of the nature of our reading of the Scripture is important. We may readily acknowledge that the message of the gospel as... Do I need to get in further? Can you all see that? Let me zoom in a little bit. Is that better? Good? Okay. I'm going to start this bottom paragraph down here. We may readily acknowledge that the message of the gospel, as it is read in Scripture and heard in preaching, is thoroughly existential. There is indeed such a thing as a dynamic moment of encounter when the message meets with faith and becomes truly and transformingly present and the Bible leaps to life and the experience of the believer in the authentic word of God. But this is not the same thing as the Illuminism of Karl Barth, according to which a fallible word of man may at a given moment become the veritable word of God to me. So a little more subjective and relativistic than we wanted to talk about in terms of absolute truth. Um, nor is it compatible with the humanistic egocentrism of Rudolf Bultmann, which tears the heart out of the gospel record and makes the value of Scripture dependent on the judgment of my experience of its word. It's a little more experientialism for those of you who have studied this at any length. What is at stake here is the actual truth of the, of the biblical witness. Not in the first place it's truth for me, though as we have agreed this is important because the message of the gospel is addressed to me, but it's truth that's coming from God. In other words, the objective character of Scripture as truth given by God comes before and validates my subjective experience of its truth. And that sentence right there is an important starting point for us today. That the objective character of Scripture as truth given by God comes before and validates my subjective experience of its truth. We have a conviction about the truth of the Word of God that leads us to a greater conviction that the truth will be maintained as we, um, as we seek out the truth of God's Word. So we're, we are convinced that there's an overarching truth in the Scripture that applies to us, and therefore we pursue that truth even when the truth is not apparent. Okay? That, that conviction motivates us. So when we approach this question, we don't approach it in a sense that we're trying to find ways to discredit the Scripture. We approach it by saying there is an overarching truth, and whatever errors apparent there may be are not calling into question the truth of God's Word. They are errors on our part somehow. That's the, that's the, uh, the motivation, that's the, the view, the lens by which we approach it because of our pre-existing convictions in the gospel and in the nature and authority of Scripture. Okay, So now I want to move more specifically to a discussion of what it means, uh, what, it, what inerrancy means. And I'm going to again rely upon Erickson's Introducing Christian Doctrine to accomplish this. Okay, We're going to have to move quickly, so I apologize in advance. Okay. Well, where'd I go? 
It's great whenever you have it marked out and then it closes on you and you lose where I was prepared. Hold on. Here we go. All right. Uh, This is from chapter 6 of his book entitled The Preservation of the Revelation, Inspiration, specifically. Actually, no, it's not. We're talking about inerrancy, not inspiration. 68 is where I'm going, chapter 7. All right, there we go. That one, dependability of God's word and errancy, which is the discussion at hand today, right? Is it dependable whenever you have apparent conflicts like this, okay? Let me zoom out just a little bit more. You can't see it. I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to. I can do it like this maybe. Aha, look at that. Yes. One of these days I'm going to be able to use technology really well. All right. Okay, here we go. The inerrancy of Scripture has recently been a topic of heated debate among conservative Christians, not just uh, conservative, liberal, or Christians, non-Christians, but even among conservative Christians. It's a doctrine that the Bible is fully truthful in all of its teachings. To those in the broader theological community, this seems an irrelevant issue, a carryover from an uh, antiquarian view of the Bible. To many evangelicals, however, it is an exceedingly important and even crucial issue. It therefore requires a careful examination. In a real sense, it is the completion of the doctrine of Scripture. For if God has given special revelation of himself and inspired his servants to record it, we will want want assurance that the Bible is indeed a dependable source of that revelation. Okay, So if we're saying that the Bible is, is as important as it is, and of course we want to affirm that, right? And if we say that the Bible speaks to every facet of our lives, then we have a task at hand. We have a dog in this fight. When we are doing exactly what Pastor David said this morning, when we are standing up in the face of culture and certain cultural arguments even today, and we are saying that the Bible clearly says that this is wrong, right? Or that this is right. We have a, a dog in this fight to say that the Bible is worth standing on. That the fact that the Bible says something is important. Otherwise, you begin to have conversations about, well, maybe the Bible was an error here. Or maybe the Bible didn't understand the, the, the culture that was about to come, and so it's not as applicable as it needs to be. So there's an issue here in terms of inerrancy, in terms of the authority and the ability for the Bible to speak in an authoritative way into our lives today. So, um, different evangelicals or conservatives have taken different approaches in answering the ideas of inerrancy, okay? So, important for us to understand. The term inerrancy means different things to different people. As a matter of fact, there is frequent contention over which position properly deserves to be called by the name. It is therefore important to summarize briefly some of the current positions on the matter of inerrancy. And there are three positions that Dr. Erickson outlines for us. Okay, Number one, absolute inerrancy holds that the Bible, which includes rather detailed treatment of matters both scientific and historical, is fully true. The impression is conveyed that the biblical writers intended to give a considerable amount of exact scientific and historical data. Thus, apparent discrepancies can and must be explained. For example, the description of the molten sea in 2 Chronicles 4.2 indicates that its diameter was 10 cubits while the circumference was 30 cubits. However, as we all know, as we all know is a uh, giant leap there for some of us who aren't uh, geometry whizzes, right? <laughs> As we all know, yes, Dr. Erickson, uh, right, yes, let me, let me shake my head in agreement. 
the circumference of a circle is pi times the diameter. If as the, is the, if, as the biblical text says, the molten sea was circular, then there is a discrepancy here, and the explanation must be given. Okay? Number two, another option. Full inerrancy also holds that the Bible is completely true. While the Bible does not primarily aim to give scientific and historical data, such scientific and historical assertions as it does make are fully true. There is no essential difference between this position and absolute inerrancy in terms of their view of the religious, theological, spiritual message. The understanding of the scientific and historical references is quite different, however. Full inerrancy regards these references as phenomenal. That is, they are reported the way they appear to the human eye. It's very important for us as we think about things like uh, the, the sun standing still. Okay? Well, of course it does. It always does, right? The earth is the one that moves. But back in the day, it uh, appeared to the eye that the earth stood still and the sun moved. Okay? So there's a phenomenal um, issue here, the lack of scientific evidence that allows inerrancy to stand but from a phenomenal point of view, okay? Full inerrancy regards these references as phenomenal. We talked about they're not necessarily exact. Rather, they are popular descriptions often involving general references or approximations. Yet, they are correct. What they teach is essentially correct and the way they teach it, okay? That's number two. Then the third option, and this is one is, uh, is dangerous to me, Limited inerrancy also regards the Bible as an error and infallible in its salvific doctrinal references. A sharp distinction is drawn, however, between non-empirical revealed matters on the one hand and empirical natural references on the other. The scientific and historical references in the Bible reflect the understanding current at the time the Bible was written. The Bible writers were subject to the limitations of their time. Revelation and inspiration did not raise the writers above ordinary knowledge. God did not reveal science or history to them. Consequently, the Bible may well contain what we would term errors in these areas. This, however, is of no great consequence. The Bible does not purport to teach science and history. For the purpose for which the Bible was given, however, it is fully truthful and an error. There's a slippery slope there a little bit to me because, I mean, at the end of the day, we are historical religion. I mean, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if not for the re- resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we have no Christianity, right? That's an historical event. If the, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, we are of most people to be pitied because we have no future hope, right? The, the centerpiece of Christianity is an historical event. So in some ways, there needs to be historical accuracy. But I also understand what they're trying to say here, and it's a balance that we have to maintain. Okay, the importance of inerrancy. Why should the church be concerned about inerrancy at all? Some suggest that inerrancy is an irrelevant, false, or distracting issue. For one thing, inerrant is a negative term. It would be far better to use a positive term to describe the Bible. Further, inerrancy is not a biblical concept. In the Bible, erring is a spiritual or moral matter. Inerrancy distracts us from proper issues, okay? And so he's just kind of outlining here why it's important. And he, he walks through, and for the sake of time, I'll just briefly mention the important issues, um, and some of which we've already talked about. The theological importance. Jesus, Paul, other major New Testament figures regarded and employed details of the Scripture as authoritative. And again, once you begin to allow error to seep in, there's no limit to where that error can go. You can begin to apply error like a buffet of sorts, right? You can go to Luby's and you can choose uh, 
which scriptures you want to affirm as true and which scriptures you want to affirm as erroneous, right? You get your chicken, you get your macaroni and cheese, you get your potatoes over here. And then when you see collard greens, right? And some of you may like collard greens uh, right here. We've got a testimony. I do not like collard greens. Even worse, this is the, probably the thing I'm going to ask Jesus or God whenever I get to heaven. Why did you create these things? Lima beans. Oh my gosh. Or English peas, right? Anybody English peas? No, thank you. I know y'all love them. They taste like pimples popping in my mouth to me. Let that ruin them for you from here forward, all right? They make me honestly sick, okay? Now, I had to eat them as a child because they were good for me, right? They were good for me, my parents told me, whatever, okay? I had to eat them. I had a choice. They were good for me. I had to eat them. Now, sometimes uh, we don't want to choose the the beans and so we we think of things like that to make us you know excuse ourselves for not eating them and if we're not careful we'll start doing these things with scripture and we'll start saying well we really enjoy the taste of macaroni and cheese and we enjoy the taste of fried chicken who doesn't right on the other hand english peas i don't like so much there's obviously some error there i'm gonna leave those in the buffet line i'm gonna take all this good stuff that's gonna you know send me to meet my maker sooner than later okay So, there's a theological importance here about the, the authoritativeness or authority of all of all of Scripture. Okay, then there's a historical importance in the idea that um, you know the history of Christianity has shown that we believe in the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. And then there's a, a really interesting discussion here about the epistemological importance, uh, the nature of inerrancy. The epistemological question is simply, how do we know? Since our basis for knowing and holding the truth of any theological proposition is that the Bible teaches it, it is of utmost importance that the Bible be found truthful in all of its assertions. And he builds on that. So, again, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which the inerrancy of Scripture needs to be upheld. Okay, And so questions like the ones that Mark are raising today are very important for us as we move forward. Okay, Inerrancy and phenomena. Our belief in the inerrancy of the scriptures is not based on an examination of the nature of all of the Bible, but on the teaching of the biblical authors regarding its inspiration. That teaching tells us only that the Bible is fully truthful. It does not tell us just exactly what the nature of its errorlessness is, or in exactly what way the Bible teaches errorlessly. For that, for that we must look at the actual phenomena of scripture. There are a number of types of problematic passages— for instance, the biblical account contains apparent discrepancies with references in secular history and with the claims of science. There are also contradictions, as we see today, between parallel passages in Scripture, such as in the book of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and the Old Testament, and in the Gospels and the New Testaments. These contradictions include matters of chronology, numbers, and other details. There are even seeming ethical discrepancies at points. An idea of the various kinds of problems can be gained by comparing, and there you get some lists. We'll just use the one that Mark gives us for today as an example. How are these problems to be dealt with? Several, and that's the question that Mark is asking that we left off of in his lesson, okay? Several different approaches have been taken. Benjamin B. Warfield, among others, maintained that the doctrinal teaching of biblical inerrancy is in itself such a strong consideration that the phenomena can virtually be ignored. My conviction of inerrancy is such that I'm going to ignore it because ultimately it's not going to matter in the long run. You just have to accept inerrancy and those contradictions. Maybe they're apparent, but one day they're going to be resolved. We don't have to deal with them. Inerrancy trumps. 
Some theologians, such as Dewey Beagle, contend that the problematic phenomena require us... I'm off page, sorry. Uh, here we are. The problematic phenomena require us to abandon belief in biblical inerrancy. That's an extreme that we don't want to go to. Yet others, such as Lewis Gossin, attempt to eliminate the troublesome phenomenon by harmonizing all the differences. Some of their explanations seem to be rather artificial. None of these approaches is fully satisfactory as a solution. Rather, we would be wisest to follow the way of moderate harmonization. In such an approach, the problems are resolved where available information yields a plausible explanation. With respect to some of the problems, however, we simply lack sufficient information to understand completely. Yet, we can continue to hold on to an errancy on the basis of the Bible's own claims, knowing that if we had all the data, the problems would vanish. Okay? Now, that is the background that we need to have in our minds when we begin to approach texts like this. That if we had all the data, the problems would vanish because of what the Bible teaches about itself. The Bible proclaims it's an errancy, and so if we're going to affirm the Bible at any level, we have to affirm the fact that it's an errant. And if there are possible um, discrepancies, the fact remains that if we had all of the data, those discrepancies would disappear. Which leads us to a definition of an errancy. We may now state our understanding of an errancy. And here it is. The Bible, when correctly interpreted in light of the level to which culture and the means of communication had developed at the time it was written, and in view of the purposes for which it was given, is truly is fully truthful in all that it affirms. It's a complicated definition, but one that's important, all of its nuance. Okay, so when correctly correctly interpreted in light of the level to which culture and the means of communication had developed at the time it was written. We have to take into consideration contextual issues. We can't, again, as I said earlier, read our understanding back into the understanding back then. There are differences between the culture back then and the culture today that we have to allow for that do not undermine inerrancy um, at that level. And in view of the purposes for which it was given, is fully truthful in all that it affirms. He builds on that with just some, some careful points that I want to walk through briefly. Inerrancy pertains to what is affirmed or asserted rather than what is merely reported. The Bible reports false statements made by ungodly persons. The presence of these statements in the scripture does not mean that they are true. It only guarantees that they were correctly reported. All right? So if right now somebody was um, recording what I was saying, and I said something along the, fat, the line, of the, the along the lines of um, Jared Richard is president of the United States. Okay, it would be accurate. They recorded that I said it, right? It does not mean that what I said was truthful. Okay, everybody there. So there's an accuracy in the recording of the events, but just because they're contained in the scripture and accurate to what was said does not mean that they are truthful in the sense that they correlate to reality and have a truth value. Okay? Important. Uh, number two. We must judge the truthfulness of scripture in terms 
of what the statements meant and the cultural setting in which they were expressed. Again, cultural sensitivity is needed. Thirdly, the Bible's assertions are fully true when judged in accordance with the purposes for which they were written. Here, the exactness will vary, the specificity of which we were earlier, according to the intended use of the material. Suppose a hypothetical case in which the Bible reported a battle in which 9,476 men were involved. What then would be a correct or infallible report? Would 10,000 be, be accurate? Would 9,000, 9,500, 9,480, 9,475? Or would only 9476 be a correct report? The answer is that it depends upon the purpose of writing. Okay? Do you want to give an approximate or do you want to give an exact? We would never say that if it takes me 30 minutes to get to my house and it really takes 28.37 seconds, whatever it is, uh, that I was lying to you and I said it takes about 30 minutes to get to my house, right? It's an approximation that we employ all the time in our speaking engagements, okay? And the same kind of grace should be afforded to the biblical authors. Four, reports of historical events and scientific matters are in phenomenal rather than technical language. That is, the writer reports how things appear to the eye. A commonly noted instance of this practice has to do with the matter of the sun rising, which I mentioned earlier. When the weatherman on the evening news, the sun will rise the next morning at 637, he has from a strictly technical standpoint made an error. For it has been known since the time of Copernicus, yeah, Copernicus that the sun does not move, the earth does. Yet there's no problem with this popular expression. Indeed, even in scientific circles, the term sunrise has become something of an idiom. Though scientists regularly use the term, it is not, they do not take it literally. Okay? Fifthly, difficulties in explaining the biblical text should not be prejudged as indications of error. It's already been suggested that we should not attempt to set forth a definite solution to problems too soon. There we are. It is better to wait for the remainder of the data to come in with the confidence that if we had all the data, the problems would be resolved. In some cases, the data may never come in. There is encouragement to be found, however, in the fact that the trend is toward the resolution of difficulties as more data come in. Some of the severe problems of a century ago, such as the unknown Sargon mentioned by Isaiah, have been satisfactorily explained and without artificial contortions, and even the puzzle of the death of Judas seems now to have a workable and reasonable solution, and he builds on those thereafter. And so what he's saying is, listen, we affirm the inerrancy of the text in its original writing, in the original manuscripts. And so the fact could be that perhaps in the text for today, there were some discrepancies. But if we had the original text, the discrepancies wouldn't be present. Or it could be a recording issue where uh, this person got this information from this person and this person from this information. There's perspectives that changed over time. Those things are okay and don't ultimately undermine the inerrancy of Scripture. If we had all of the data that was available to us, um, or if we had all the data needed to answer this question, there possibly or probably is an answer based on the idea that the Scripture um, obviously teaches itself to be inerrant and worthy of authority. Okay, so we have to take those things, take into account those considerations for ourselves, which is exactly what Mark does in his lesson. 
And because we're running out of time, I'm not going to go through the lesson, but you have it in your hand. And so what he does is, is he shows you based on this information, based on this common assumption of inerrancy and the fact that we need inerrancy for the Bible to be authoritative, he gives you an outline of how he would approach resolving a text like this, right? He writes down the questions. On page five, he shows them to you. Who incited David to act, God or Satan? How many warriors were counted, 1.3 million or 1.57 million? Who sold the threshing floor, Aranah or Ornan? Did David pay 50 shekels or 600 shekels? Was the payment in silver or gold? He writes those questions out, and then he walks you through the process that he would use to answer those questions. He goes into uh, books, commentaries on the text. He ultimately starts with the text itself, obviously. He uses study Bibles, alternate translations. He goes to word studies, uh, word study books on the text. He goes to journal articles. He takes general works on the transmission of Scripture. And he even brings into, into account a conversation that he had with a biblical scholar. And he shows you how all of these things together can resolve most of the issues set forth here in the text. And even if not everything is resolved in a neat manner, we rely and fall back on the definition of inerrancy given to us by Erickson that there's, there's obviously possible scenarios by which if we had all the information that was needed to answer these questions, a resolution could be made. And so we can stand firmly on the authority of Scripture in light of its inerrancy. And that's where I feel like I have to stop today, because if I open another can of worms, we're going to be going all day. All right? Now, my prayer is that you got some sort of underpinning to really go after questions like uh, Mark um, opens for us today. And again, if I read that too quickly for you, and I'm sure that I did for some, please go pick up uh, Millard Erickson's Christian Doctrine. Read through that. Uh, There are other great guys, as I said earlier. Dr. Carson has tons of stuff on this stuff. Go look up. Dr. Carson stuff, um, any reputable evangelical New Testament scholar um, has written probably on this because it's such a big, big deal. Any systematic theology like Grudem's is going to deal with the need for authority of Scripture, the, the need to hold an errancy. Go read those things and affirm what the Holy Spirit of God is going to affirm in you as uh, a child of God, that this book is the revelation of God. And it is... It is uh, authoritative, it is clear, it is sufficient, and it is worthy to, uh, to build our lives on, our practice on, because of what it contains therein. So rest in that, um, that, uh, that God has revealed himself to us and has given us all that we need to be faithful followers of him, to be reconciled to him, and to live lives of fullness and meaning. And remember that even the text that we discussed today, has, as Mark will show you, has no significance in terms of the actual meaning of the passage. The, the whole point of the passage for today is to show you where the temple is going to be built, right? It doesn't matter how much he bought it for or from whom he bought it from or if that's a title or a name. At the end of the day, the message is, is, um, is, is protected. It's, it's there. The details do differ, but there are possible explanations that do not um, necessarily remove uh, the Bible's inerrancy from consideration. Okay? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for today. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would affirm in us this truth, that, it would, uh, that he would... Um, He would give us clarity. 
for any place that we may have a, a lack of understanding. And God, help us just to, to rest in the ultimate truth that you have revealed yourself to us um, to show us more of who you are, as I prayed earlier, more of who we are in you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that uh, he allows us to have the Holy Spirit of God in us to, to allow us to walk into these uh, greater um, depths of truth. God, we love you and we thank you for your provision. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you.